Welcome back to ComTrack, where you'll never have to watch a movie alone again. I'm your host, Tim Lifeite, and joining me, as always, is Sean Wheeler. Happy to be here, as always. <laughs> and yeah, last week we uh, we got really political with uh, V for Vendetta, although, uh, to be fair, it's kind of hard not to, <laughs> especially these days. Um, uh, we're actually recording, so just as an FYI, we've recorded this before the election, so... Things are still up in the air for us, so if we sound outdated, that's why. But, um, yes, but if you guys want to just, like, uh, skip ahead and start the movie, there's, as always, there is a sync button where the movie st- where you can, uh, le- uh, the, it'll let you know where the movie starts and you can get right to the movie. But that said, this is a fun one. This is probably one of the most fun dystopia movies of all time, isn't it, Sean? Uh, it really is. And w- <laughs> when thinking about this movie and really uh, Terry Gilliam films in general, uh, that very famous quote always comes to mind. And that is that art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I feel like that is the entirety <laughs> of Terry Gilliam's career, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, it totally is, dude. Like, um, you know, this is on a subject of a diff- another Terry Gilliam film, um, but it was uh, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. It was the one movie I've seen that truly kept me at a loss for words. See that like uh, you've mentioned this before, and it always that always throws me because it's like I watched that movie, and I bought it within the week. Like I loved it. See, I I mean I knew it was a Terry Gilliam film because I watched it first uh, when I was uh, uh, in film school, and we it was at a, a Thursday night screening at our theater, uh, and I knew it was a Gilliam film, but I wasn't expecting just how weird it was going to get. <laughs> And by the end of it, I, I was uh, the only thing that was running through my mind was that uh, great Roger Ebert review of uh, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. I admire what the director has done here. It's a very good job. It is one of the most unpleasant experiences I've had in a theater. And I guess I have to vote thumbs down. But as a side note, I admire what he did. And I hate it. <laughs> it was like I it's like. One of the few films that left me at a complete loss for words. This movie didn't quite get there, uh, but it was. It, it, I think it's because it was so rooted in Orwell that Orwell was weirdly what was keeping me sane through See, my first screening of Brazil. And I think definitely if you're going into Fear and Loathing with no awareness of who Hunter S. Thompson is, what he has done in his life, and... Uh, the kind of, of coverage and things that he has done, uh, I think it, it has a very difficult approach. On that note, if you haven't watched it, you should. You should watch Where the Buffalo Roam. Oh, I should, that, you know what? Maybe I, I get a different on take on somebody playing that, that iconic character, or, or a person, actually, because it's not a character, although whether you know whether he was being a character or actually being himself is always you know up, up for a question, but... <laughs> Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I just, everything, uh, I, I have never seen a Terry Gilliam movie that I haven't liked. Uh, one of my all-time favorites is The Brothers Grimm, because uh, it, it just, it, it takes just that that kind of 
fantasy fairy tale movie and just handles it so well with perfect casting and i i will if somebody pretty much anyone could just walk up to me and i could be in any mood it doesn't matter they'll be like hey you want to watch a terry gilliam movie i'll be like yes yes i do hell yeah i don't even care which hell one yeah. put one on let's do this <laughs> and and probably want to yeah go one ahead one of the things i know is big for you um you know we've talked before about the fact that you always want to see people try and you like really use the medium of film in a way that what they're doing can't be done in any other medium. Um, yes. And I definitely yes. think, you know, for his time, cause you know, let's face it, he's, he's at the end of his career these days uh, cause yeah. he's getting up there, but I definitely think in his heyday uh, he was pushing a lot of those boundaries more than anyone else was at the time. And really, you know, using yes. uh, the medium in, in the kind of the way that it should, uh, now, not necessarily um, beyond anything that had come before, but uh, when you really look at, at film and where it had gone in like the 60s and 70s, a lot of the insane creativity that came out, uh, you know, for actually making movies from like, you know, the, the 20s to the 40s when they were first using the techniques, a lot of people had backed off that. He, you know, re-embraced them, doubled down, and and used them to really create these amazing, vibrant stories and worlds, and just visuals that like take you to a completely different place. And I think, um, oh, totally, that you know, that's gonna be his his legacy for a very long time. So, I I don't think you could look at people today really trying to you know use film as an art as a medium of art to do original things and not give credit to you know the the leaps forward that were possible because of terry yeah yeah uh because i'm so glad you point that out because you know like um like some of the two best things that you know i've always come to believe that the medium of film specifically is really good at is creating a mood and also creating uh, uh, um, not so much a narrative, but more along the lines of an idea. Yes. You know, it's like, because uh, Inception really was like probably one of the most meta films in the last couple of years because, you know, it's about, you know, crafting ideas and, uh, you know, infiltrating one's dreams because, you know, films are very dreamlike in that sense. And uh, but yeah, looking back on uh, all of Terry Gilliam's movies, they do have that very strange, weird, dreamlike quality. I mean, you know, um, even though like something like Fear and Lo Loathing Las Vegas is more like a drug acid trip, <laughs> um, it still has that element of like you're dreaming like these things that you're seeing aren't real you know they're not real but they feel real it's that uh fine balance of surreality you know yeah and i mean that's you know for the uninitiated that's you know something that happens on a lot of psychedelics it's just like i'm yes. not sure whether or not what i'm experiencing is because of the drug or if it's reality and you have yes. there are issues distinguishing the two at times Yep. Boy, I hope you got you listeners back home got some shrooms for this one. Because <laughs> it's about to get fun. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, because uh, he, he's, he really is, like, embracing that sort of thing. Because, uh, again, <clears throat> um, oh, crap, what was I going to get to my point to? 
I have a brain fart. I think the shrooms just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't have any. I'm too poor for that. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll also, because we also got to mention that this is the second of the, uh, the, the Imagination Trilogy, um, which I love. That's probably my favorite body or subpart of Terry Gilliam's work, particularly Time Bandits. Yeah. Like uh, t- Time Bandits is it's the children's film I honestly wish that I saw as a kid and grew up loving cuz I saw it in college with uh, a dear friend of mine. Um visual effects uh the the uh, BGSU's premier visual effects artist Nick Puhala who absolutely loved Terry Gilliam movies. He hadn't seen Time Bandits. I hadn't seen it. Uh, I happened to have a copy and we watched it, you know, at my place and we just had, it was, it's one of the most fun movie experiences of my life. And I always hold that first screening, uh, very dearly. Uh, and hopefully I can get like persuade Nick to come out and do the commentary with us (laughs) because, oh, I love that film so much. I mean, it, it is an absolutely wonderful film. Interestingly, uh, this is the start of another Terry Gilliam trilogy. It's the middle. Oh, is it? It's the middle of one, but he actually has recently said that this is the first of his dystopian film trilogies, and he ties us in with Twelve Monkeys and Zero Theorem. Oh. So yes, he acknowledges that this is part of the Imagination trilogy, but he it now also fits into another trilogy that he has acknowledged. Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> man, I would have never thought of, man. See how cool this movie is, you guys? <laughs> it's fucking cool, man. Uh, although, you know, it's really weird. Like, the weirdest little fun fact about this movie that I read up on. Uh, apparently, because, again, this is a total uh, just mystifying to Gilliam himself. But apparently this movie is really popular with the American right, as in the political right. Yeah, I, I do not understand that at all. I don't. Is it because this is what they want? Yeah, it's like this is an indictment against like literally everything that was going on in the Reagan 80s. And yet. <laughs> I, it's so, it's, it, it you know. It's odd to say, but that just might be the strangest thing about this very, very, very weird movie. Yeah, like, I can understand, you know, them, you know, the right being like, hey, I love Wall Street. Like, I know it's a cautionary tale, but, you know, you just, the whole point is don't get caught. Like, like I can yeah. understand that. Like, this? I'm just like... Mm. Or even, like, The Wolf of Wall Street, which is specifically made to be, like, a Rorschach test. I always say great movies are, like, really great Rorschach tests that they reveal who you really are. Like, if you watch The Wolf of Wall Street and you look at it and you're like, oh, my God, what a bunch of fucking sleazebags. And I am pissed that they don't get indicted or really, like, punished or any regrets or anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm pissed off about that. And other people can watch that. I'm like... Fuck, that guy had an awesome fucking life. <laughs> you know, it's like cuz that's uh, I always love uh, you know, Rorschach test movies. Yeah. And I always thought, you know, some of the great greatest ones do that. Um but 
this I never really considered a movie quite like that, but I guess it is. Yeah, for for some <laughs> In a weird way. But you know, at the same time, I can, uh, and, and this is almost kind of mean to say, and and, but I could definitely see where they don't get it, like when it comes to the ending, like, I think they might just literally miss the point. You know, it's yeah. like... Well, you know what? It's very... Cl- I just got it. They watched the uh, the studio cut. Oh, gosh. And liked it. That's what it was. <laughs> that is that is totally what it was. Oh, and yeah, for before I totally forget, for those of you who are still actually listening, we are watching the director's cut. Yes, there are three versions there's the original cut that Terry Gilliam made. Then there was the amazingly stupid studio interfered cut that they released and tried to push. And then uh, there's a funny story, which we'll go into more later as uh, the episode goes on. But uh, they made a third version, which was a, a director's cut approved by Terry Gilliam. And that's the one we're watching. And let's be honest, it's kind of like Blade Runner, the final cut. <laughs> it's the best version. Like, yeah. the last version is the best version. The, the, so. the amount of absolute crap Terry had to go through in fighting with the damn studio to get his oh cut out there, to get God. this movie released as it should have been, was a nightmare. But that's I, also one of the brilliant and wonderful things about, about Terry is that it's like, Oh, he'll fight that fight. He will go oh, yeah. toe-to-toe with you. Mm. He will not compromise uh, on his art. No, no, honestly. And that's that's something... It's uh, Really, it's honestly the most commendable thing about that is not only the fact that he fought very hard, brilliantly fought, and actually managed to get it released, uh, but he actually had the gall and the balls... To get back into a director's chair in a few, in, in just a, another couple of short years. Oh yeah. After that. Well, I, I mean, not only after that fight, but I mean, the fact that the movie came in relatively close to budget, but took seven months longer to film than was planned, like that—that's kind of a miracle. <laughs> it's like this took them nine months to make when it was supposed to take two. And then two months yeah, to th- make th- a movie. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it was only supposed to take two to three months and it took like, uh, as I said, I think it was supposed to take six to eight weeks. It ended up taking nine months and Good then he had to fight, fight, fight to actually get his version out there. So it's like this man went through all that and was just, but before long was just like, all right, let's do it again. Movies. And, and that's really the kind of attitude that it takes to make movies. It's like, you have to love making movies that much that you'll just jump right back into that insane fight. You know, uh, my my wife uh, often looks at me like when whenever I share my old stories of making movies back in college, and she's like, "Wow, you really are a masochist." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's that's just kind of the nature of things." Because, like, you know, it's, it's like, I think uh, one really great editor, uh, I think it was for uh, one of the editors for The Lord of the Rings, um, they were just doing all the, like, you know, editing 200, you know, million feet of film or something crazy like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, And they're like, boy, that was one of the hardest things I've ever worked on. I don't think I'll ever edit ever again. But, you know, they're like, yeah, I guess it's like a mother giving birth. Like, Jesus Christ, that was f- so fucking painful. But, 
you know, in two more years, you find yourself doing it again. <laughs> so, okay. But, uh, you know, that's, weird. That's, that's movies. Yeah, it really is. And also, here here's a, a little weird random, random piece of trivia I think everyone should know. Because it's so okay. interesting, even though it's not related to this. But because you mentioned Lord of the Rings. The last shots that are included in the extended edition of Return of the King were actually mm-hmm. shot the day it won the Oscar. Oh, So they yeah. weren't even done with what they were doing for the extended edition when they won the award. Oh, yeah, Think yeah. about that. Uh, like, one of the, uh, the because the, I remember... The movie um, was you know, out, <laughs> and they'd won yep. the award, and they still weren't done. How insane. Yep. I, I think it was really funny that uh, uh, when Peter Jackson was doing some more inserts uh, for paths of the dead where the skulls all yeah, fall out that's exactly what cut. it was yeah they were like man peter jackson's like you know it's really nice say eh, that uh you know you win the academy award for the best picture and you're still working on the movie <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's some really good shit man but enough about other movies let's talk let's get right to it and talk about brazil which is uh oh actually can we say that it might be terry gilliam's finest movie his magnum opus possibly mm, see i i don't know that's that's a good question yeah i don't i don't know that i i could necessarily say that just because of the brilliance of other films of his that i've seen and i think that's i don't know that anyone could ever really make that claim because i think so many of his films are going to be very subjective uh based yes. on how they hit you personally because they're all very personal stories um and they all look at you know extremes of life in in different ways uh i think this one i would definitely say just because of everyone living under capitalism and things of that nature this is probably his most approachable film uh outside of obviously the python work i i would i would say that it's it's the film that most people would would be able to you know have an engagement with um, but I don't necessarily know that you can straight say anything is his best. I mean, the the bro- it really comes down to the viewer. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and you know, there's certain people who it's like there's definitely high. You can see high watermarks, but it's like I've never gone into a Terry Gilliam film and been like, oh man, he dropped the ball. Like I've never seen this guy drop the ball, in my opinion. So that's why it's like, mm, like I've seen Scorsese drop the ball. I've not yeah. seen Gilliam drop yeah. the ball, so I'm like, eh, I can't really say that. I, you know, I, I, there are there are a couple that are just lesser for me because I have such a high standard for Gilliam, but it's kind of like you know, you know, Werner Herzog, uh, even his, like Roger Ebert once said, even his failures are spectacular. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you can say that about Gilliam. Yeah, and I mean, I, I definitely think, and, and I have no problem saying this. Um, to me, you know, when it comes to amazing, you know, auteur directors, it's really like I, I often put, you know, Gilliam and um, uh, uh, Kubrick in the same breath, you know, because like they were wow. they're so okay. about what they do. And while obviously they're very different from each other, when you look at their body of work, I mean, you know, when you're watching a Kubrick film, you know, when you're watching a Gilliam film. 
Oh, yeah. Um, and, There's lots of wide-angle lens. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but it's also, I mean, they give you this visceral feeling that I don't necessarily get from a lot of other auteurs. Not that other auteurs mm-hmm. are bad. I mean, there's, um, obviously, it's like, I clearly love, you know, you know Spielberg and, you know, Wes Anderson and all these people. But, man, I mean, I don't think, I, I think the visceralness of their work is something that really ties, you know, those two directors together in my mind. Um, totally. Which is why, you know, I, I tend to think of it that way. Totally. All right. Well, we've been talking for almost 20 minutes now, so I think yeah, we, should, we should probably get started yeah, on the movie. Yeah, it's also a long movie, so. so. Yes, it is. So, all right. If you guys got the movie, you got it on Blu-ray, you got it on VHS, boy, I just hope you got the director's cut, because this is the bit where we're going to get started. So here we go in three, two, one, click. And remember, oh yeah, we so I'm watching the uh, the Criterion Collection version. So uh, for those of you Criterion fans out there, you've got a really good version, especially, uh, um, like I said, because we are watching the director's cut, the two hour and twenty three minute version. So hopefully you guys are all good. <clears throat> Like right, almost right away, we got the uh, the music. Yep. <laughs> I mean, and it just it, it pops up throughout the entire film. It's wonderful. Yep. Well, I mean, because I remember the, uh, some of the original working titles was 1984 and a half. Yeah. Which was actually kind of brilliant because not only is it you know a reference to George Orwell's 1984. But also a little bit towards uh, um, uh, 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 Finelli's uh, Eight and a Half, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really clever. Uh, They also wanted to call it The Ministry, (laughs) which honestly is kind of boring, actually. But the fact that they were like, you know what, let's just use every version we can of the the 1930s song uh, Aquela del Brasil, or Watercolor of Brazil, that is. <clears throat> and just that's the name of the movie now do you know the the legend behind where that came from oh please tell uh app- tell us all so apparently uh terry was on like went to visit the beach in england and it wasn't that nice of a day but there was just like older guy out there just enjoying this mediocre beach day and this was the song he was playing on this like little portable stereo or whatever that he had. And Terry, Terry was just so taken aback by like this guy who was just fat, living in this moment, but in, it's so mediocre, but he clearly like was in his own world, finding a way to enjoy it. He was just like, <laughs> I'm taking that song. Totally. And I'm just going to use, and I'm going to get my money's worth out of that song. I love the posters. I love all the propaganda posters. I mean, they're straight out of, you know, the uh, the Soviet Union and, and, and the propaganda posters from like World War II. They're brilliant. Yes. <laughs> also, I love the production design of these whimsical machines. 
interestingly, this gentleman here uh, is a percussionist who actually toured with, uh, uh, I think, uh, who I think it might have been like Elton John when he played Russia. Wow, really? Yeah, or maybe it was Billy Joel. Regardless, yeah, he's uh, he's actually a musician. Right on. I'll and see. Already, we've already begotten like a ridiculous amount of Terry Terry Gilliam's signature wide angle lens. Uh huh. <laughs> Whoops. Bottle. The mistake that starts it all. Yep. It's all because those damn machines don't work. And that's actually one of the, the, the best little bits of commentary uh, that this movie, I think, has. Is that, you know, like they, we, you know, so, we always talk about progress and things, but we constantly make sure our shitty, our, uh, the stuff that runs our lives is constantly shitty in quality. Just so we can manufacture a reason to maintain them and create quote unquote jobs and um, and to give people this weird false sense of uh, uh, luxury. Yeah, you know. Um, so two things. One, I had never caught before that that show yes. was the eye, and like Terry Gilliam has this thing for putting eyes in his movie. Now that's not exactly oh, shit, how he. Right. That's not exactly how he normally does it. But I love the fact that he found a way to at least get something like it in there. <laughs> also, you all, clever bastard. all my heart for the fact that they have the Marx Brothers played. Oh, love it to death. <laughs> Totes. I also love the genius that she uses the, the mirror to watch mm -hmm. the TV. Oh, shit. And all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yep. Just uh, and of course we have another Terry Gilliam staple, bursting through shit. <laughs> we always gotta have someone burst through some shit. But yeah, look, guys. You know, if if these poor people weren't white, this would be America 2020 right now. Ouch! But yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 really hard to it's really hard not to be political in these times. Uh, for by the way, folks, vote. Vote. Won't, won't this come out after the election? I think so. Oh crap! <laughs> I feel in it like an idiot now. Okay, I guess uh, I guess I deserve to be arrested now. Come and take me. Put me in the thing. <laughs> um but yeah this is straight up 1984 although you know what's really funny apparently uh uh gilliam never read the book yeah which is really interesting which, particularly consider how many references to it he puts in here yeah and i also love that he gives it a, a bit of a comedic edge to it with, with this kind of shit like the woman is just totally compliant right it's horrifying, but it's also weirdly funny. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, shit. Oh, man. You know, I always, whenever I uh, uh, pitched this movie to other people, I always said, 
it's exactly like um, uh, George Orwell's 1984, but with 10 times more wide-angle lens and a lot of ceiling pipes. <laughs> Why ceiling pipes? I don't know. I'm not even sure Gar- Gilliam even knows. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> Whoops. Oh, that poor woman. Well, I'm sure this will have no lasting causes on her children. <laughs> Oops, spoke too soon. Oh, here we go. Oh, I love this. And I love this shot. The fact that it pulls out and with... Yep. I don't know how he was able to choreograph all those extras to move so perfectly and fluidly because they are like cogs in a, in uh, a clock. Yep. And they, there's only really the one side here. They show you going around the corner, but they really just fake it. Like it's the same side from the other direction. Yep, yep. That's that's some really good camera tricks. Oh, and, and right here, I mean, the incomparable oh. home... <laughs> Oh, Ian Holm. God rest that man's soul. Because just about anything that he's in, he's just absolutely brilliant. (laughs) You know, that's another thing that... Because I... Now, uh, you might not have noticed this, but Mm -hmm. this is something I literally was not able to get out of my head. Well, actually, I love this part right here. As soon as the boss is gone... Yep. Boy, now that's the work workplace in 2020. I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, one of the things that I always weirdly connected with the production design to this movie was that it really reminded me of the production design by brilliantly done by Anton First in Tim Burton's Batman. Mm. Okay, yeah, like, I can, at... I can very much see that, particularly. Um... Yeah, v- yeah, very much. Like with the, the. It feels like it's a combination of you know Carl Grissom's uh, um, office in you know its high level rise apartment. Yeah, and uh, also Axis Chemicals. Exactly. Yeah. That. That. Thank you. That's. I was trying to think of the chemical factor. I was brain farting on it. It. It really. Because it, it. It reminds me of it. It's somewhere between. <laughs> love that that's so good such good comedy and i actually love his hairstyle where it's kind of looped a little bit to look like devil horns yeah (laughs) so great um but yeah this is a movie that's clearly i mean it really is um somewhere right between blade runner and 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 here uh, we, we, we finally are getting our shots of our protagonist yep and my God, the, the incomparable Jonathan Price. Yeah, and I mean, man, what what a. I mean, this is one of his favorite films. You know, he talks about it's one of the favorite roles he's ever done. But I mean, my yeah. goodness, he has such an amazing talent and range, and he's so good here. Yes, he is. I like the Bowie-esque makeup on his face. I love it. It, it you're right. It is Bowie-esque, isn't it? Like that's that's uh um, he he's, he's even got the the the, the lightning 
uh, makeup on from, uh, uh, oh, God. Aladdin I say. feel like an asshole. Yes, thank you. Wow. I listen to so much Bowie, you'd think I'd, like, have that shit memorized. I also love the uh, the the sound design. In addition to the production design, that you have it like it's all analog, mm-hmm. you know. Because again, I love the that Gilliam was way ahead of the fact that, um, you know, because I liken the the, uh, the machines in this movie as to the American internet. Yeah, <laughs> we invented this shit. Yeah, it it really is kind of like a great modern time saver and whatnot. But we keep it so in such a shitty and poor condition that it constantly needs updates and rewires and yeah. you know visits from to get your your routers updated and fixed. That it's supposed to you know artificially create jobs and also maximize profits. And I'm like, dude, you're way ahead of your time because <laughs> all this shit is, like looks cool. But fuck if it doesn't work. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I also really love uh, the uh, uh, the apartment co- uh, um, production design. Yeah. Again, this this movie really does feel like it was perfectly. It was re- like taking some of the elements of Blade Runner from Ridley Scott, recycling them, and then transforming it into its own thing. And then Tim Burton saw this and took elements from this movie, shifted shit around, <laughs> and made it into Tim into the Batman movie, which I thought was it's just a wonderful way for you know how shit gets yeah. recycled and 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 the sign right there, you know, information is the key to prosperity. That is straight out of like the style of it, straight out of yeah. the Soviet Union. Yep, yep. Even the uniforms and the uh, the the Sten guns. And later on, they have the giant Bren guns. Yeah. And I also love how they kind of give it like a weird, almost, you know, uh, 1940s aesthetic as well. Like this is supposed, you know, this it's like, like you know, the whole commentary of like uh, Batman, the animated series. Like it's yeah. the, the whole production designs. Like it looks like the 1939's World's Fair went on for another 50 years. <laughs> for sure. Whereas this, you know, this is 1984 for them. It's just that the style of the 1940s really never went out. I like the fact that despite the fact that there was a break with the pythons, he uh, he still puts uh, <laughs> puts them in here because he, he, yep. he promised in this role. Interestingly, that's actually the role De Niro wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was he, he fought really really hard to be in this movie, but uh, he he still wanted just wound up uh, as the smaller role of uh, Tuttle. Well, yeah, who goes in. And, he wanted this. And, he, you know, he wanted the uh, the role. You know, Michael's playing here, but you know, he got yep. Tuttle because he Terry had promised this role to Michael, and you know, with that kind of relationship, that's not a bridge you're burning. <laughs> yeah, but I I think even De Niro was so like so enthusiastic that he basically did that uh his uh his bit part for free oh yeah he uh i don't think he was even uh initially like credited or billed yeah yeah it's just in later years it's like oh shit robert i even remember watching the movie for the first time i'm like wait is that fucking robert de niro right holy shit holy shit what are you doing here dude 
You're just in Raging Bull, man. What the hell? <laughs> oh, there's another another use of uh, the the eye. Man, I really wonder if any of these like old props ever survived. <laughs> Something tells me they they didn't just because you know, as you can see, they're literally cobbled together by oh old yeah thrift store junk, um, and you know on a very loose you know, puppetry mechanism yeah. that, you know, a performer off camera can do. But I really did wonder if like any of those survived. It'd be really cool if it did, but <laughs> it would be, but I'm 90% sure that it's not because all those parts are, you know, just cobbled together. I imagine someone, <clears throat> excuse me, they just, uh, uh, took it apart and, uh, used all the pieces either for scrap or to refurbish it for another prop or something. Yeah. Because, you know, shit gets recycled in the movie business all the time. Oh, yes. And I also love the fact that they have to constantly have these giant uh, mirror uh, enlargers for all their screens. Yeah. Um, which, you know, now that I... The more I think about it, because if you remember... For the trailer for Wally, um, the Pixar movie, yeah. they had the song Brazil playing for the trailer, mm. and then later on in the movie, he has like he's playing you know Hello Dolly on a little iPod, and he uses the mirror to enlarge it to a big screen. I wonder if that's like a direct result, like uh, inspiration I, from I, Brazil. I love that it goes from pulling strings into a face being pulled. <laughs> Just that one little bit of paperwork that... Oh, God. Well, he certainly got Botox, Botox uh, culture right. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when we first watched this for the first time, we could... I couldn't stop um, sending all my film friends uh, pictures of this woman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting her face peeled back, just like. Because <laughs> they're like, I swear to God, Tim, just one more picture. <laughs> one more, and you're off my contact list. <laughs> of course, there's another image that uh, uh, I like to just randomly send people for, like, with no contacts, but we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, right away we're, we just got all the all the more wide angle lens. And I just love just that he's make sitting it... over there and he's starting to like pick up the uh, the plastic surgery pieces, like the excess brass yep. and stuff. It's like, wait, yep. what? Yeah, <laughs> like it's like. Ew. <laughs> Jesus, that that seriously looks like she's gonna die. Yeah, I and my gosh, I love the uh, uh, the it's like the shoe on the head. Like what? Oh, that's where I remember because I'm like, where have I seen that doctor uh, before? Uh, that's uh, Jim Broadbent. Uh, if you remember, he was um, uh, 
Hog, horse Slughorn yep. in the Harry Potter movies. He was also um, uh, the 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 chief of police in Hot Fuzz. Ah, uh, yes. Because you know, because you know, he's only he's one of only you know twenty British actors that exist. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's the other thing about this movie that I thought was super fun and whimsical, and I'm glad that it's never explained. <laughs> The hats, the shoe hats. Oh, yeah. But I, I also, I mean, do you finally see the inside of this amazing fancy restaurant? And, and there's giant pipes Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you still got all the, the, the heating ducts all over the place. It's so tacky and stupid. You know, I... I'm actually, you know, I think if you look closely, they they're like jewel encrusted, like they've got the oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the material of disco. So like, look, it, he, yes, the heating ducts are everywhere, but it's an, it's an aesthetic thing, dear. <laughs> it's an aesthetic, darling. That's why it looks good. Oh, and speaking of aesthetics, what do we have here for this gift? <laughs> and look at the ridiculously huge menus oh my god that's you know those uh those uh um uh touchpad things that you see at the like the applebee's or the the like the uh um like any of the upscale you know uh grill and restaurants like the touch screens that mm -hmm. they have for you to sign the bill and yeah. look at the specials and whatnot holy shit that's that before that was even a fucking thought dude yep. God, you gotta love how this shit like totally uh, really tries to predict all these sort of things. Because this movie came out in 1985, which and I'm 90% sure they wanted a 1984 release because you know 1984. Yeah. Um, but uh, although it's funny because there was a movie that came out in 1984 that wasn't a direct adaptation, starring John Hurt. Yep. And that's actually one of the reasons they abandoned the idea to call this 1984 and a half. And a half, yeah. <laughs> they didn't want it to be too closely related, especially because it was another, you know, Ameri a British and American production. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm actually curious. Did you ever see that one? The the, the uh, one with John Hurt. I don't believe so. I ha I've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, you know, like they show like, you know, little bits of it in high school and whatnot. And when they show you the book and whatnot, uh, I didn't read the book in uh, until college. I didn't actually read it in high school, but uh, I've seen a, a few clips of it here and there. Mm. Really need to the one of these days because boy, does it feel relevant. I mean, I love the absolute train wreck of this meal. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> you also gotta love how you know the people really aren't like terrified and trying to run out of there they're just like holy shit what the hell was that and the band just yeah continues to play like nothing happened um yeah, uh, Terry stated that <laughs> has stated that his his uh, inspiration for the restaurant bombing and, and for the terrorists was the activities that were going on by the IRA at the time. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. 
I wonder if the, the you know the locals were as like cool, calm, and collected as this. I sincerely doubt it. I, I doubt it too. But honestly, it's 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 still really funny just how like oh they're at it again. Well, yeah, and and, and also uh, to put some historical context in it, a lot of IRA bombings were preceded by a phone call a couple minutes ahead of time because they were not looking to actually kill people. They were looking to, to you know, destroy the property uh, in, you know, as retaliation and to make their point. So they were a lot of times not actually looking to inflict casualties. Well, if that doesn't sound familiar too. <laughs> Boy, it really, yeah. You know, this is why I really couldn't resist doing this movie, considering we are kind of at this dystopian level yeah. of, like, awfulness. And, although I really do wish it was as strange and whimsical as this one, you know? Because I don't know about you, but, you know, every night I go to sleep, I have dreams where I fly in a Bowie costume. <laughs> like i mean if you're not dreaming like this you're just doing your dystopia wrong <laughs> <laughs> like you gotta that's this is you want to you gotta fly away to escape and fight giant monsters and oh look oh shit look it's trump's wall <laughs> <laughs> like oh shit he wasn't kidding i guess he was he totally was I just love the visuals here. I mean, it, it just right? works so well. Right? And the fact that, the, I mean, look, I know that shit's miniatures because, you know, it's really hard to scale down, you know, dirt and gravel and things like that. But I'll be damned if it isn't still really good. As a matter of fact, Gilliam and his special effects have always been, like, low-key really fucking good. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 I go back to Time Bandits a lot. And, you know, there's lots of uh, 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 comparison to, like, the Star Wars movies, particularly, like, Return of the Jedi, because it came out around at the time. You know, that, and it also has, like, you know, a bunch of little people just like Return of the Jedi. Right. Including several of the actors who were in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, the effects in this one, in uh, 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 Baron Munchausen and Time Bandits, all of them really kind of, like actually cutting edge at the time yeah you know it's it's weird that you know uh, you know everyone talks about oh in the 80s like all these you know like the towering inferno and star wars and you know all these like really big spec special effects movies like terry gilliam never gets recognition for the work that he does on these yeah and i mean his, it's actually, his effects are fantastic yeah it's it because because I, I remember watching uh, time bandits for the time i'm like wow, this shit's really dated, but in the context that it was like, you know, like the early 80s, this is actually really phenomenal, especially for a straight-up kids movie. You know? Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> especially uh, with, uh, you know, the uh, the warmer weather out, just sticking our, <laughs> sticking our head in the fridge. I relate to this shot on a personal level, you guys. <laughs> like, it hurts. 
just falling asleep at 3 a.m. with my head in the freezer. And then all of a sudden my phone get, gets a call. And of course, I said, I'm stupid enough to answer. And it, what is it? We've been trying to reach you about our extended <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> oh, yep. And we were talking about him before. And if it isn't the man himself, fucking Robert De Niro. Yeah. And interestingly, De Niro has nothing but glowing things to say about working on this movie. Yeah. But Terry got rather fed up with him. Oh, really? Yeah. Do tell. So apparently most other uh, scenes only required like two or three takes. Like that that's all the actors needed, like two or three takes and they were done. De Niro kept insisting on like 20 to 25. <sighs> so he was supposed to be in this movie for like, like he was supposed to be as part of uh, like onset filming for a week and it turned into two weeks. Oh, God. And, like, he had this whole thing about doing his research and all this stuff that was just driving Terry up the wall. It was just like... I mean, in all fairness, that is just Robert De Niro. I mean, we're yeah. talking about the man who only five years earlier to, to this, uh, he lost... He he uh, uh, gained 60 pounds for Raging Bull. Yeah. Like, that's nuts. Nuts to do. But in all fairness, it is kind of fun to have him there as like, and I love the fact that he's a vigilante repairman. Right? That is like, that is two words I never thought I would ever hear side by side, but here we are. <laughs> and you know what's also really weird? By like 2021 or 2022, I have a weird feeling that we'll have vigilante repairmen <laughs> running around <laughs> in costumes like this repairing cars repairing air conditioners refrigerators washing machines just you know like holding a gun to your head i'm like i'm here to help <laughs> I'll, I'll get my toolkit <laughs> although we forgot to mention uh the other repairman in this movie uh, the late and also equally great Bob Hoskins. Yes. Um, so interestingly, that piece of paperwork he references right here, yeah, uh, was actually a reference to the address of where of where Orwell wrote a lot of 1984. Ha! How about that? For a dude who never uh, read the original novel, it's amazing how much he was able to squeeze in here. Oh yeah. I also love the stupid-ass glasses that they give him. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god. Just... <laughs> Interestingly, do you know how he got Bob Haskins on this film? Oh, please tell. I'll, uh, so, I want to hear all the facts. Apparently, uh, this was oh, at the same time where Bob was off uh, making the Cotton Club. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. And, I, and apparently, Terry just showed up on the set and basically hijacked him. He's like, I need you. Come on. 
Well, in all fairness, like Bob Hoskins has like that crazy edge that's necessary. Oh yeah. Hey, if it ain't the man himself. And and it's you know it's interesting. I didn't even think about it because yeah. uh, there's actually uh, a story that has Bob Hoskins and De Niro uh, tied together. That's that's quite interesting. Oh. Please so share. Bob Hoskins was originally supposed to play um, Al Capone in The Untouchables. Like, oh my god, contracts, that would have been amazing. No, contract signed, like he got paid for it. Period. Like it had been wow. done, but then unexpectedly De Niro became available, so they they bumped him and got De Niro. But because the contract and stuff had been signed, he still got paid. And so he has this joker. He was always like. He's like, I always tell the studio, let me know if there's any other movies you want to pay me not to be in. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. I, and now, look at, if you look at the rage on his face, now I really kind of want Bob Hoskins right? as that cartoony version of Al Capone that we saw. Oh, yeah. Let's I mean, be honest. Like, the, the Untouchables, the, the history behind it is absolute ass bogus, but... I don't give a fuck because that movie yeah. is entertaining. So here's something interesting. Uh, apparently, the exteriors for this apartment building are not a set. What? Appar- apparently, from what I was reading, uh, the exteriors, like, I mean, the interiors obviously are a set, but the exterior yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, was a new fancy built, like, Paris apartment complex. And they used that to film the exteriors. Now, obviously, the stuff around it, you know, had to be added yeah. or whatever, but like, yeah, apparently the apartment building proper is an actual Paris apartment building. Fascinating. Although, however, I should let it be stated, I am not 100% positive if that's for all the shots or just where he's ziplining away. It might be. But I also know like, when, when he saw zip, earlier. But I also know when he's ziplining away that that's, that is a set. That's a model down set. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just like I am... But I do know that they... It, it, that you know the exteriors for the apartment complex was a Paris apartment complex. I'm pre- I'm pretty sure that like the earlier shot where you saw Jonathan Price looking out out at his balcony, like that was part of that too. Um, they you know they just uh you know did uh, added some matte painting with it. Yeah, and um, I think that's what but, it is. I think it's actually you know just you know that apartment complex with matte painting all behind it. Yep, that's that's probably what it is because you know. Hollywood's always about like how can we get the money out of this? Oh yeah, you know. And I mean, the most brilliant thing about about film that I love is, um, you know, the use of forced perspective. It's just like, oh, you don't actually realize how close or how far away this is, and we can use that to make yeah. you think that your spaces are bigger or smaller or all, all sorts of crazy stuff. It's wonderful. Yep, you can move walls around and shit like that, and you get to play around with that. But I love this that he's like. I'm not even going to take a tip. Like I do this because like we're, I'm a freedom fighter. Like, hell yeah. I really hope there's more guys like this in the future. Although I really hope that the, that guys like him aren't just have to be justified. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause Holy shit. Yeah. Well, I do love his enthusiasm. Like he's just always moving around and just on edge and shit. Mm -hmm. Everything was Metropolis, you guys. Everything is Metropolis. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, there's there's not a single like big dystopian or science fiction movie that wasn't 
inspired by uh, Fritz Lang's I, Metropolis. I really want that that really like classic retro po- poster of Metropolis. Yes. Because not only is it beautiful and cool, but it doubles as referencing not only Metropolis but Hackers, which is like my favorite yeah. not, one of my favorite 90s movies. Like I understand yeah. it's not good, but like it's still so fun. Man, you know, I so I used to be a uh, work a printer shop uh, uh, at an old job of mine, and I used to get some bootlegs uh, posters and whatnot from like high quality mm-hmm. resolution uh, images from the internet. But man, I really fucking wish that I had one of the uh, the Brazil propaganda posters. Oh yeah, I wish I was like shit. I should have gotten one of those because man, you 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 would never. I, re- I, I re- okay. So if there's anyone out there who's listening and who knows where they can find like one of those propaganda posters, like you know either from Redbubble or wherever, send me a link because I would love to have one one day. I've I've got so much art. It's it's ridiculous it's hanging up in my apartment. I love how they're still like trying to get over this hurdle of butthole. Yeah. But <laughs> I love the fact that he is obviously a master of the computer. Like, yes, that's why he, he, he like you know, he lives his life how he wants. He, it's, he has a cushy job. He doesn't want to move up because like, it's just, it's all easy for him. He can run the game down here. Yep. He, uh, he is in his comfort zone. But of course, you know, it really wouldn't be a Terry Gilliam film if uh, the protagonist wasn't thrust out of their comfort zone yes. by extraordinary and whimsical means. I don't know in this case if it's so much extraordinary and whimsical as love, but I get you. That's, yeah. That's, or I should well, say, in, fasc- in this case, you're fasc- right. I should say infatuation, not actually love. <laughs> That is very true. I yeah, mean, your dream really girl showing up in real life does not actually mean you love that person in real life. You have an well, infatuation. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of the same deal with Orwell, uh, you know, where, um, uh, oh, God, what? Boy, it's been a long time since I've read 1984. Um, but uh, not not Winston, but uh, his, uh, his, uh, his love interest, uh, yeah, Julia. But, yeah, but they actually meet. Like, that's the whole thing. Like... They meet apart from him having... He doesn't have an infatuation with her. He meets her and then falls for her. So there's the difference. Really? Because I remember in the book where uh, he got a note from her saying, Hi, I love you. I mean, he may have, but what I'm saying is that, like, there, he wasn't fantasizing about this person and then they showed up, like, here. Okay. You know what? That probably was... Yeah. They were two real people encountering each other. Like, this was not mm-hmm. like, oh, look, somebody from my dream showed up in real life. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I love the entire way Ian Holm plays this scene. Like, he's just so needly and, like, his mannerisms. My gosh. He's, like, you know, yeah, because they set him up as so powerful and so in control but as like things go on, you realize just how what a nervous and pathetic wreck he is well, mentally. Yeah, there's actually um, so um, man, I, I 
I don't have it in front of me right now. I'm not even sure if I can find it, but like, uh, the breakdown of his name is even, uh, relevant. Like, uh, Kurtzman, when you break it down in German means like, um, small and something else like it's a reference to the character's stature as well as like like his name is even a play on like the <laughs> traits of the character oh yeah here it is uh it's kurtzman german for short man so he's even saying that like he's small in stature and small in success his name is even a play off of who he is that's oh, the, the level of detail clever. you get from this guy's from from terry gilliam movies it's brilliant these motherfuckers are way too clever for their own good. <laughs> but you know, you know, I guess it really does make sense that he was part of the uh, the OG Monty Python group. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the things that I always love saying about Monty Python is, you really have to be exceptionally and extraordinarily intelligent to create something as stupid and dumb as this yeah well but but that's that's just one of the same things that i really love uh about um so that's like a little german car apparently that was an actual car that existed at some oh, point oh yeah which is insane. i love this little thing <laughs> um but yeah when you're talking about having to be bright to make something that that silly um <laughs> <laughs> Um, nope, nope. Uh, when it comes, if you've ever seen the show Futurama, apparently oh, there was shot. something like a hundred and sixty some odd years worth of Ivy League education in the writer's room. Yeah. So yeah. it's just like, yeah, like a lot of the amazing stuff you see out there that's kind of silly, but is also like really intelligent and has a lot of like nuance and subtle things like it takes brilliant people to make something that silly, but also yeah. make it that cerebral at the same time. Yep. Uh, I think, uh, you know, that especially goes for, like, you know, uh, the, the writer's room with Matt Groening on both Futurama and The Simpsons. Like, yeah, they, they've always been billed as the most overeducated uh, cartoon writers ever. Like they have like three, like like three PhDs, several master's degrees, yeah. um, and uh, several you know other uh, major doctorates uh, in the writers' room. So that's that's what always gave them their that kind of weird edge. Uh -huh. uh, and it's there's it's certainly the exception here. I also really love the fact that you know the kids in the street. Instead of playing, you know, like, you know, playing soccer or kickball or baseball or anything. No, they're playing with guns. Right. Like, just subtle little and, details. And he doesn't even so flinch. Much. He doesn't even flinch. No. And that just shows you what, what a fucked up world this is. Although, again, is it really that far from 2020? <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, it's it's the same with, you know, V for Vendetta on our last episode. But, you know, this and, you know, V, the, like, it's kind of a perfect year to watch these movies, isn't it? It's a perfect year, and it's an also the worst year. Right. Simultaneously. Because, oh, shit, is this, this scene is so fucking awkward. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, what the hell do you say?
man, you know, I really hate bringing this up, but there is no, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to get an old quote from my hero, Werner Herzog. The poet does not, uh, uh, divert his eyes. This is what is coming at us. Mm. And the thing is like this scene right here just really reminds me of the horrible injustices going on in the national police departments. Oh yeah. You know, like, and it's actually even more powerful now than it is ever. Cause I mean, the fact that, you know, her face is always in focus, even though she, like, uh, uh, you know, um, Jonathan Price's character is center stage. Yeah. It's her you're looking at constantly. And weirdly enough, they also have the TV in the background as this ever-present, constantly annoying thing in the background that wants to draw your eye, but the sympathetic, it never, it, it never draws their eye because the, the those who are empathetic are constantly looking at her performance. And, yeah. It also reminds me of that, uh, it, like I don't know if you, you uh, if any of you out there have been watching the uh, the show The Boys on uh, Amazon, which is a phenomenal show because I know you've been watching it, um, watching it, Sean, right? Yes, uh, although I have not seen yesterday, so no spoilers. No, that's that's fine. <laughs> um, well, it just reminds me a lot of you know like the big superheroes corporation trying to cover up the the horrible crimes and damages and deaths yeah and they're just you know like oh we're sorry here's an nda here's two thousand dollars and we'll be on our way bye oh sorry like it's just the fact that this isn't the react like this reaction is total totally uh relevant but of course you know it's undermined by holy shit right <laughs> And it's like, he, oh my god! Do you know who that was? Yeah. That was the director. No shit! The smoking man on the stairs is Terry's little cameo in this movie. Oh my god! How about that? I guess he he just has to have a little Hitchcock moment there. <laughs> But yeah, it's like it's times like that where I'm just like, Ugh, this movie hurts. Something I would like to point <laughs> out is that he really pulls off that fedora quite well. No kidding, right? I want his suit. I I, I really love the men's apparel of the 1940s and 30s. Well, I think the the biggest thing that you lose uh, in a lot of days uh, with suits these days is the lack of um, waistcoats. Yes, yes. Uh, that and uh, really good uh, dress trench coats. Yes. You know? How, however, one of the... Uh, one of the nice things about... In my opinion, if you go with, you know, a, a, a solid single color suit that doesn't have a waistcoat, the wide world of what is now possible and available in waistcoats is very interesting. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, right here, that's just like classic noir with the the the, the, the sacks and all the the men in suits walking away into the distance with the deep shadows. Mm-hmm. Good shit. I also love how overly long his trench coat is. Like, it actually looks too big for him. can't find the woman that I'm trying to stalk. <laughs> Boy, if this ain't the IRS, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was only one time where I've seen, you know, an IRS man, you know, uh, becoming infatuated with someone ever really work was weirdly with uh will ferrell and uh um um oh crap uh, oh uh, you maggie mean, gyllenhaal yeah stranger than fiction yeah that's that's actually one of my uh favorite rom-coms i love me sci-fi rom-coms i i mean the the strength of that movie is obviously the fact like you had a script so good that you got dustin hoffman to be in the movie like i know that right? says it all <laughs> Not to mention Emma Thomas, too. And Queen Latifah? Emma Thomas is highly underrated. Yeah, she is. She is. We gotta do an episode for that one, because, again, one of my weird uh, favorite things to watch are uh, sci-fi rom-coms. So, like, you know, Eternal Sunshine, Her, um, The Adjustment Bureau. Really love those, actually. You know, the Adjustment Bureau didn't do much for me, but I'm right with you on, you know, Eternal Sunshine, her... Um... Yeah. Boy, I love these dream sequences. You know, this is, like, probably one of the few... Like, uh... Or one of the few directors that knows how to do good dream sequences. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, like... Uh, you remember, uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert's review of Jaws the Revenge... And they're like, a dream sequence. I hate the dream sequence. I can't stand them. You can hear the audience groan. I'm like, look, I'm with you on this particular case, but I'll bet you what, there are people who can do good dream sequences. Oh, yeah. And Terry Gilliam is definitely what in, one well, of them. Well, one of the key points of a good dream <laughs> sequence is that the sequence has to be so absurd like so different from reality that it is clearly a dream sequence and, mm -hmm. and that's or it the the only other thing that would work is if it like you know got to the cutaway where you know the person just like stood up like awake like <gasps> you know yeah they do that constantly the only other time that actually works is if it's actually a really interesting or surreal or deep knife twist into the uh, the well, character well not necessarily you know? i mean it can work they can work if it's like okay this dream sequence was showing what somebody really like 
oh, what they're actually fantasizing about and they, like in real life and then woke up quickly out of it like, that works yeah. well. I've seen that done well. But it's like, yeah. if you're doing a horror or outside of whatever oh, dream God. sequence, I mean... Well, speaking of horror, look right? at this place. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, God damn it, I just fixed this place. Also... How are there this many ceiling pipes? Right? Seriously, like, I know there's a lot of ceiling pipes in this movie, but how is there this much? Also, is it really weird that I kind of want Bob Hoskins' hat? <laughs> <laughs> like, it looks so stupid, but... Is it weird that I kind of want that hat? <laughs> Although, you know what's funny, though? I think that hat and the uh, the jumpsuit there is a better look for him for Mar to play Mario than what they actually had in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you referenced that nightmare. <laughs> Well, I mean, look at this place. You know, it's, it's kind of hard not to. Do you know that he was drunk through most of that? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, how else do you get through a movie like that? Yeah, him and John Leguizamo were just like, well, I guess we're drinking. Yep. Another bourbon, eh? <laughs> Although I can only imagine what uh, um, Dennis Hopper was doing behind the scenes on that. There you go. What is that? McK McKin? McKenna. I didn't quite catch. McKenna. Ooh, nice. Very nice. You are a man of dr uh, of. You are a man of wealth and taste. So uh, have some wealth, sympathy. <laughs> so have some sympathy. Christ alive. How the hell is he supposed to sleep in this shit, man? Right? Oh, I love that match cut. I swear, those are some of the hardest cuts to ever pull off. The only time... I, I, I've had one movie of mine where I had a really good match cut, and it was on total accident. <laughs> oh, man. I come here to liberate you. Mummy? I love that the armor is like electrical pieces, like, like yes, like yes, electrical boards and stuff like that. But it still maintains the patterns and the respect for the culture. Oh yeah, it it, it still plays out well. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, apparently, his <sighs> reason for wanting to use a samurai here, and specifically like for this kind of sequence, was yeah. to pay homage to Akira Kurosawa. Of course. I mean, he, he uh, talk. We talk about an, uh, a lot of masters on the show, but Kurosawa is just might be the greatest director who ever walked the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's arguable, but he's he is truly one of the greatest. Well, it. I mean that that's a really easy way to figure out like how great someone is. And when yeah. all, pretty much every great director that is working cites him as an inspiration, 
That yep. should tell you what you need to know. Yep. Although what I really love about this is uh, the fact that they use all these great creative camera tricks to make this guy look, you know, 15, 20 feet tall. Oh, yeah. Because, um, you know, they have him with the giant shadow backdrop. They use forced perspective. Uh, they have, you know, body doubles with little people. Like, yep. Every trick in the book. I love when they do that. And, you know, they, you they know, use that, that, that upward angle to, you know, make yep. him imposing. Yep. And, of course, you know, because Terry Gilliam is probably the greatest user of the wide-angle lens who probably ever got behind the camera. Like, uh, he really knows how knows its strengths, its weaknesses, and he doesn't always use it for the sake of being weird. Every once in a while he will, but it's always with a true purpose. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like he said, this is another way to scale it up, but I also love the fact that, you know, like James Cameron, he uses the very good discipline for, if you're doing special effects-heavy kind of sequences – you use for every different shot a different technique so that way the audience never feels the same technique you know because yeah. that way your eyes never get used to one effect oh it's so cool you know i can only imagine the poor costume designer on set like because obviously there's this big action sequence lots of big fight and you know, now we got to burn the thing, and oh, I love this. That's fucking Empire Strikes Back right there. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you know Gillian saws Empire, watched that, and like, I'm gonna steal that. Right. Make a, I'm gonna make it better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, I, I love it when they do that sort of thing because, and put, and I just really feel. Like that poor costume designer trying to maintain that thing, because it always looked like it was ready to just fall apart at any time. You know, we've talked about how we've seen a lot of weird things both in this movie and this year alone, but let's be honest, this is still not the weirdest thing. Nope. An operatic telegram for an invitation to a party. No, that's still not the weirdest thing. As a matter of fact, uh, I mean, this was like a couple of years ago, but out of all the surreal headlines that come out these days, I don't think we're ever going to get any weirder, any weirder than uh, the acting attorney general is steeped in conspiracies of fraud Bigfoot, time travel, and extra masculine toilets. I don't think we're ever going to get quite weirder than that. <laughs> but I'll be damned if this movie t doesn't try. <laughs> Because how you have to, because like, the you know the establishing shot feels like that's him walking in there, and it pans up, and it's like, oh no, it's not, or is it? It's just a really clever little thing. Mom, 
You look so young. <laughs> They're still scanning <laughs> Oh man, there's something I didn't notice before, but look at uh, her makeup on her body. You notice how they have like very thin pieces of cloth on it to give it that like weird scaly kind of look to it. I never noticed that. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just like look real closely. Yeah. Like, it's cloth. Yep. And I think they use that to make her skin look a little like that much more like. Yeah. Loose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also, I really love the, uh, the the stupid mole along with the stupid haircut that they give uh, Jim Broadbent. I love this. Oh, oh, God. Um, shit. Because, uh, man, I, I know this actor because I've seen him both in Time Bandits and he was, like, one of the uh, the, the main Ewoks in uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, uh, Jack Purvis, that's it. Mm. Yeah, he also uh, did... Uh, um, he actually worked a little bit with uh, as R2-D2 with uh, Kenny Baker. Ah. Yeah. So I imagine this kind of culture was like pre-Joan Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that uh, Joan never really took like a whole bunch of uh, uh, jokes or references from this and just decided to, you know, roast in herself. Because yeah. I know she did that a lot. God well, I mean, dude, her stand-up in her heyday was unparalleled. It truly was. She was, she was one of the great... Uh, Probably one, probably the greatest female comic to ever step up to the mic. You know, it's another thing that I really love about this movie that is because, you know, obviously 1984, there's not really a whole lot of room for holidays because it's all about maintaining this, uh, this this dystopia as permanently as we can right <laughs> um but i do love that they bring in the christmas setting right to this movie because i don't know what it does but it adds just a little a little bit more flavor to the uh, the world at hand like uh, you know how uh stanley kubrick's eyes wide shut was randomly set at christmas yeah yeah but for some reason that I still can't quite articulate other than maybe the lighting, uh, you know, with the, 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 the crazy Christmas lights in the mm -hmm. background. Other than that, I really can't think of a reason why this movie would take place at Christmas or anything. But for some reason that I can't really articulate, it just adds a new, interesting level and flavor to the movie. Oh, man. <laughs>
have these fucking seal the the, <laughs> the ceiling pipes everywhere. Right. Just, I, I'm sorry. It's just they're because they're so prevalent in in every uh, corner of the frame. It just makes it all the funnier. But the best part about it, though, I think, <laughs> is the fact. Oh. I did. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Right? It's just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Although I will give them this: uh, shooting in an area where it's all mirrors, and for the life of you, looking around, you still can't see the uh the the camera yeah like that's actually kind of a feat and that's and that, you know nowadays that's not so much of a big of a deal because you can uh, always digitally erase it right but in the early days you always had to shoot at an angle where you couldn't see it but you know i'm looking around where all these reflections and i never was able to spot any camera or equipment in the machine i wonder i wonder who stole that and made a movie <laughs> interestingly so his you know he was talking about his father uh yeah. jeremiah here i am the way he spells that is also an anagram for jeremiah oh that's really clever man i love this shot oh it's brilliant every management ever i swear you know i was actually having a, a a conversation with a friend of mine uh the other day and I'm like yeah you, you know maybe you should try to get into retail because you're really good with people right and i'm like oh no i avoid when on my last job i avoided retail duty anytime i could because <laughs> um it's not that i'm afraid of customers or disappointing them i'm far more terrified at disappointing my manager when it comes to customers. Because mm. I don't know what it is, but the the whole uh, workforce of today is just so unsettling. You know that there should be a horror movie about that. Yeah. You know. You know what I mean? Like, how great would that be? Someone write. Okay, for those I of you listening. And with those who work retail, write me a script about uh, a, a, a very scary, uh, like, either office or retail manager. <laughs> That'd be fucking great. Like a weird mashup of, uh, you know. Oh, I, uh, I love this. Uh, this is. Oh, I love these. So brilliant. 
this is actually le going to be leading up to one of my favorite cuts of the entire movie. But uh, uh, we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, I was just thinking, like, it should be like a villain uh, mashup between Hannibal Lecter and uh, um, uh, what's her name from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Um, Nurse Ratchet? Yes, Nurse Ratchet. Have it be like a weird bastard son or daughter of those two and have it be your office retail manager or something. That'd be a great movie. So I just caught it. I, I hadn't caught it before. Yeah. They just had a really brief moment of interjecting the the Brazil notes in with this ominous music quietly in the background. Oh, shit. You're totally right. I've never watched this movie with headphones on before like I am now. And I, it's interesting <laughs> that I that I picked up that little that little trick. Nice. And now we can hear it more prevalently here. Uh-huh. Cuz now we're in the the uh the uh the more frantic and more upbeat part or walking quickly and talking and things like this and like look at this paper. Look at this. Oh yes, very good. Very good. Get me some coffee. Oh, I will say this though, this definitely captures like the uh that frenetic pace that you that one would get at uh <laughs> I love that blocking. Oh, man, the blocking in that is just perfect. You also notice how like the the other guys in the background are always holding their hand up mm -hmm. with pe with papers in it, and just constantly like even when it's like a complete like quiet beat, they're still holding it up, ready to and poised and ready to go. And there's that which damn is just so again. fun. Yep, yep, and of course, more goddamn pipes. <laughs> Although this sequence I thought is really great. Although, you know what's weird? Um, so one of my favorite uh, film critics who ever lived was obviously Roger Ebert. Did you know he did not like this movie? Huh. He gave it two stars. Which is so weird. And I wonder it's because if it's like the original version or the... Uh, uh, um, the studio version that uh, uh, they yeah, got on here. It, it, it but, really does depend what version he saw. Um, but he did go on to say that the best scene in the movie is the simplest. And it's this scene right here where he finds himself <laughs> engaged in a tug of war over his desk yeah. with the other side. And, and I, I love how, like, <laughs> you know, you, they, they, they had that clip of the Marx Brothers earlier in the movie, and this feels like yep. the most Marx Brothers scene of the entire, it's entire also got production. Like, it, yeah, it also has, like, a really good touch of Chaplin, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, the way he uses his leg. Although I really do think that's a really funny idea that the ministry is so cheap that 
they only can they only uh, buy half a, the amount of desks, right? And they just <laughs> shove it through the wall and have the 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 people compete but, for it. Well, it's clear that it was once one office because you have that fake divide and it goes right through the poster on the back wall. I know, right? And speaking but, of posters, lo- get a load of these posters. Yeah, for real. but it also brings uh, brings the other question of why would that office have had two doors? Uh, honestly, I think it was originally built to be one big, bigger office. Right, right. Then... I get that, but why were there two doors in that one bigger office? Why would there be two they... entrances to it? That's very strange my, to me. My my guess is that they built the extra door when they put the wall in. That's just uh... a, a, an educated guess. But either way, I think it's one of those questions that make the absurd humor, the classically absurd yeah. humor in this movie, just sing that much louder and truer um <laughs> god i love these and you know what i also love about these devices is the fact that they constantly despite the fact that they're constantly used and whatnot they always look like they're it got a heavy coat of dust on them right well and what's very interesting about this one in particular is that He's supposed to be at this this other section now, this higher up, like, important go, go, go section. And the guy's not even using his terminal, and he's like a terminal expert. So, like, what is this telling him about where he has ended up all of a sudden? Yeah, exactly. Like, huh, maybe this place isn't so I, great. I do like it? the fact that we finally see what one of those stupid gifts does. <laughs> I know, actually, I really like that. That's a a really cool little, uh, a little stupid use. One of uh, you know the the classic useless uh, devices like the uh, yeah. the, the bird pendulum. Of course, I really do love how that he d- he chooses not to use the classic bird pendulum because we've seen it a thousand times. Let's let's see some. His movies are all about let's see something different. And speaking of different, let's yeah. just have the fucking wall come to life. <laughs> have it give it a face too. Why not? Now, if I'm not wrong, was that Ian Holm? Yes, it was. It said, "Don't go, please." Like, don't. Yep, that's that's right. He didn't even know he could turn it on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How did you even get to this job? Seriously, these fucking posters crack me the fuck up. Or at least they would if they didn't feel so close to the Trump posters out there. That's right. Thank you very much. This promotion has now deemed useless. Oh, shit. (laughs) I swear, this guy talks like a tobacco auctioneer and a Wall Street broker. But I love the fact that, like, they're, they just keep harping on the fact of, like, 
you took a car out and there's issues with it. Like, will you please do your damn paperwork about this car? Yep. Because that's what's funny. It's like, I don't think anyone would actually care that the car got destroyed. They just want the paperwork that says the car got destroyed. Yeah, this movie has a weird fetish for paperwork. Well, it does, but, but like, there, it seems that there are no real consequences as long as you, like, play within the rules. And that's just it. He played outside of the rules. His, the, uh, his apartment got destroyed. It's Boy, like... Boy, if that... There's some, there's some commentary for you. Yeah, and, and that, and that, but that's what this criticizes is the fact that like, yeah, if you play within the rules, you get like things will go right for you within the system, but then you're stuck in this boring, lifeless, like soul crushing, unimportant, materialistic existence, and that's awful. Yep. But at the same time, when you step outside of it, it's like yes, you there's potential for better things, but there's also abject horror as well mm-hmm oh god <laughs> the transcript right oh my god i don't know what's more horrifying the sounds that she's listening to or her like or her pleasant reaction yeah she's just like this is my job i'm fine yep. no worries yep this is just another wonderful day on the job here at the ministry. This is such a lovely day and do have a good day and be sure to have your paperwork. <laughs> oh, I also love how seemingly useless the, uh, the, the hand bracelet that she's wearing. Yeah. Like what, 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 what are we getting at here? But at the same time, it's actually kind of funnier when you don't know. <laughs> What a reveal. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Those fucking gifts, I swear to god. I love the fact that that one of those that one his, 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 he has a kid there while he's coming yep. out drenched in blood but that you see one of those baby masks hanging up oh my god i yeah you're right yeah okay that was so i mentioned that uh, that image of uh, his mother's face getting stretched around i just used to send that all the time especially after me and a bunch of friends got together and watched this for the first time <laughs> the other image was the uh the doctor with the baby face mask on. oh yeah with that great shot with the extremely, almost like borderline fisheye lens. Mm -hmm. I'm a... Uh... One of the things yes. that, that always really threw me for this is this is my first time seeing Michael Palin um, not playing like in the Pythons, like playing something straight. I'd never seen that before. And I was just like, oh, man, like he really can do it. Huh. 
You know, that is something weird that I haven't really thought of. I mean, he's... Because you're he, right. He's really good. I mean, he, he nails his part. He's great at acting here. And it's the first time I've seen him not being silly. And I'm just like, my gosh, he's great. Yeah, because, I mean, the closest thing maybe is a fish called Wanda. But in that one, he's still, he's still pretty silly. Yes. But, you know, I guess... You know, I mean, because I guess it's safe to say that silly is his currency. But in a movie this silly, the fact that he's playing it straight makes it silly. Well, <laughs> yeah, but the the whole thing is the world is silly. No one in it is being silly, though. That's what makes this movie so, like, disturbing. That's what makes yeah. it unsettling. Yeah. It's like a much more unsettling approach to the movie Airplane. Yeah. God, seriously, these posters in the background. Who can you trust? Well, he has got a real hard on for this woman. Right. But in all fairness, I mean... In your in your average dystopia, isn't there? There's only two ways you can deal with it. You can either try to you know free the people, or get laid, <laughs> or both. You know, but usually it's one or the other. Because you know, like great example is Katniss. Do I want to free the people or get laid? I I love the free fact the that <laughs> he just hands him a suit. Oh, I know, right? Doesn't try it on or anything. Doesn't make sure it's fitted or anything. Just well, well no, he's wearing it. But then the next scene, he's wearing it. He's in the nicer suit. Of course, I just love how that you're not entirely sure how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> That's so dark, but it's so funny. Also, can we talk about the the uh, the, the uniforms and the polished helmets and everything not only polished helmets but polished chrome helmets right like what oh oh of course uh oh no it it, so this movie came came up with the idea first i think because Spaceballs was 1987 one of my favorite quotes from Spaceballs uh that i continue to use today is fuck even in the future nothing works (laughs) I think this movie might have done it first because this was uh, 85 and Spaceballs, I believe, was 87. So, yeah. Even in the fucking future, nothing works. And look. No, I want to go down. Down. She's there. Yes. And And I also love how the, the music is in his head. Like it's so glaringly uh, or uh, auditorily blinding to the reality of the situation, <laughs> and then of course, no, nope, I mean his, nope. his mannerisms through the whole thing are just perfection. Oh dear, he's not supposed to be down here. <laughs> you know like 
don't you love the fact that you know uh these people are so quick to put the out of order sign in but slower than fucking molasses to get it actually fixed right Where are your papers? <laughs> also love the extremely padded shoulders. Yeah. Like, I swear to well, God, they're but, wearing, like, low-key football armor underneath. What I find so funny about it is, like, it's because of how he's holding stuff that causes all these problems. Had he literally yeah. just shown his badge, that's all it yeah. would have taken. Yeah. Because you find that out right here. It's just like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Take a look. at Like, these shots right here and those set setups, like, that has to be the early setup for the Axis Chemicals. Although, you know what's really funny? Because this came, uh, See, came out See, they saw the badge and they're like, before. oh, shit. Stand to order. It's badge. <laughs> I love how he's using that shit. Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny, like, how literally just a badge and a piece of paper is the difference that uh, between life and death in these. Yep. <laughs> and it's just amazing, like, man, if you just forge that shit, how easy would it be to access everything? Man, I, I really dig the art deco. But see, uh, the design for the, the ministry. I love how, I mean, and here he's losing all the papers and. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I, I mean, for God's sake, don't lose it. He has just dropped the whole file like he is. Yep. <laughs> random oxygen tanks on the, the side of the road like a phone booth i love the the taped x over the dog's what? butt like right what is that what, what, what are we trying to accomplish here drop your ass off talk about how that blind comes out of nowhere <laughs> oh hell
really wish that uh, Jonathan Price did more roles, could have done more roles like this, because he's impeccably good at channeling, you know, Keaton and Chaplin and the Marx Brothers. Like, I, can you imagine how good he m- would have been in like a uh, like a really cl- good cl- uh, classic slapstick comedy? Oh yeah. I mean. <laughs> But I mean, his his work with his work with Terry is is honestly some of his absolute best stuff. I mean, I don't know if uh, you've seen the man who killed Don Quixote, but my I gosh, seen that yet. I, I mean, I went out of my way. I got to catch it in theaters when it had its its like one week like special run before it actually theatrically released, and oh, it was oh, brilliant. You lucky bastard! You lucky bastard! You. So. Her part had to actually be shaved down quite a bit. Oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, uh, Terry knew a lot of the same people that like she did and she came highly recommended and she did like screen tests. Well, um, but like she'd only been in one other film before this. Yeah. Like her performance was just not quite what he was hoping for a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. it's like, he basically was just like, yeah, I, I kind of learned that there really is no substitute for experience. So like, there was like more of her part, like filmed and done, but it actually had to be like shaved down. And a lot of her scenes shortened just because it was not working for what he wanted to do. Yep. And, and sadly, she really didn't do a whole lot uh, after this. I mean, she did, a couple in the 80s, a few in the 90s, but, like, she hasn't been in anything, like, since, like, like 2001 was, like, the, some of the last stuff that she's done. She's more or less retired right now. <laughs> <laughs> Playing them like a fiddle. Oh, my God, this guy's such a dorky pushover. Well, he spent his life living in dreams, like he doesn't deal with people. Or reality. Get the hell out! <laughs> Just immediately cuts it with, to her with a cigarette. I love the fact that you that's always matches. It's always matches they're using in this movie for the cigarette. It's never a lighter, you're right. Oh my god. Like it's a little touch, but like it sticks with you. You remember. Yeah. It. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> Man, I got to love how there's an absurd amount of blinds in that little cabin. Oh yeah. But you know, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, of uh, Jonathan Price here, yeah, I, I find it interesting that he has had such a long and varied career, but he only like I think just this last year got nominated for an Oscar. Really? He oh, uh uh-huh. oh, What was it for? The Two Popes. Oh, right on. And I mean, he does a wonderful job, but that's right. He was he played for uh, Pope Francis. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah, he is kind of the perfect guy for that. I mean, his accent he does is so spot on. You're just like, wait, yeah. what? 
Well, not only he also has an uncanny resemblance to Francis as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I see what you mean about you know wa- watching him do like a, a Buster Keaton type movie would be perfect. Yeah, it would. He's a little old now, but well, yeah, it'd be yeah, really yeah. great. But had he done it in his heyday, yeah, it would have been real. It would have been really great. Oh. Power today, pleasure tomorrow. <laughs> God, the artwork is so fucking. Br- uh, who I gotta fu- look up who the graphic designer was for this movie because, man, these posters are so creative and so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, a fucking volleyball game in the middle of a power plant. No big deal. It's whatevs. I mean, in all fairness, like, let's be honest, like, you know, that's, that's, that actually feels like a precursor to this, the, uh, the Springfield nuclear power plant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a bunch of dudes in hazmat suits playing volleyball. Watch your fingers, watch your fingers. You know, the other thing that I really got to hand it to Gilliam is, like, the fact that he constantly has what I call uh, uh, on-edge blocking. Because it's really, really, really hard to stage the anxiety in your actor's blocking and how they, you know, how the actors move and whatnot. But to do it throughout the entire movie and not, you know... uh, uh, offhandedly exhaust your audience is actually kind of a terrific feat because, as you know, poor Jonathan Price is moving through these sets like a, a like a, a a giant awkward lobster baby. Yeah, <laughs> but to keep to keep up that kind of uh, anxiety is is actually kind of a great feat. Oh, I love this. The, oh the, yeah, all the the billboards. The long string of billboards that half of which we really never really get to see or appreciate. Don't be opening it, man. Well, I mean, see, and that's just it. It's just like, you know, he clearly doesn't trust her, and she even is like, open it, I don't care. And. Oh, hell. Sure. They're the terrorists. What I find so interesting right here, particularly, is that, like, she's calm. It's clear she's dealt with this before. This is honestly probably procedural. And his reaction is what messes everything up. Well, I mean, uh, to be honest, like he is way out of his element. He is Donnie from oh, Big yeah. Lebowski. <laughs> Donnie, you're out of your element. It's like, yeah, he he does not under. It's like he stayed in his bubble for so long. He never really. He got a promotion to a new section, but he's not sure how that world works. Like he's so mm-hmm. new to it. 
he also, uh, you know, all of his experience r romantically has always been in dreams. And now that he's forced to literally right uh, deal headlong, you know, pun intended here, d dive headlong into reality is yeah. quite jarring. And, but it's not only with that, it's with everything. It's just like. He doesn't understand the reality of his job. He doesn't understand the reality of the ministry. He doesn't understand the reality of love. Like he has spent so much time in dreams. He does not understand almost anything, which was fine when he stayed in his lane. You know, maybe that's why the American right, uh, the political right has always loved this movie because they identify with that. <laughs> Perhaps. I've stayed like in my dream world so long, it must become reality. Which is totally funny because, you know, his dreams wind up getting turned on his head by the end of the movie. Yeah. Oh, crap. Also, can we talk about the design of those police cars? Oh, yeah. They're so stupid looking. And so they, they he manages to come up with a design that is super aggressive and intimidating and also really stupid and hilarious at the same time well and there there's definitely i don't know how much you know about like english like police enforcement tanks and stuff like that they're clearly a futurized uh, a futurized version of those kind of tanks that the english used but they're just because they're so hilariously box like they look like you know, uh, 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 they, they they look like a, a you know hilariously beefed up versions of like the Mars rover. It's actually kind of it's it, like and plus when you know that they're models, yeah, they just look that much more unintentionally adorable, while still keeping that imposing kind of thing going on in context with the rest of the film. If that poster right there isn't republicans all over consumers for christ oh my god if that ain't true jesus christ prosperity lighting like man that really is the republicans in one in like one great advert <laughs> Oh, you know, you know what I really love uh, that I just noticed about this little uh, the, the the mall they're in right now. Um, they've got all these beautiful, like you know, fabric lacing uh, draped around everywhere to to give it that beautifying effect. But I just remembered, it's pretty much the same material as the bedroom when they finally do get together. Nice little oh, bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> love the use of the mirror though <laughs> that's a great line
<laughs> you know, normally, normally that voice oh, change. Oh gosh. Or that vo- oh god, no, no, put it away, put it away, change the channel. Oh, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you. But normally, that that voice uh, choice would probably be really annoying, but. No, it kind of weirdly fits. It kind of weirdly fits in this chaos of a movie. I don't want to call it a dumpster fire because it's not, but it kind of is, and that's what. But like, it's an intentional dumpster fire. That's yeah. It's an intentional. It's an intentional dumpster fire of a movie, and I I kind of love it. Dude, it's right here. And it's the same thing. It's the same <laughs> gifts. It's the same goddamn gift. That's another really great little commentary that everyone buys the same goddamn Christmas gift every year. Because, you know, like I said, it's profit for Christ. Uh, Christians for profit. Where's your badge, dude? Oh, such a good match cut. I love this shit. And now, if you notice, like, it's no longer in the original setting. It's actually in his in his reality. He's splicing yeah. reality and dreams together. And I love that. Okay, so we've had some really great cuts, especially with that... Uh, those wonderful match cuts to splice the reality and the dream world together and to make them cross over and whatnot. But coming up in just a few minutes uh, is probably my favorite cut of all in this whole movie because it just shows off how well Terry Gilliam uses his, uh, his wide angle lens. Like uh, it's probably the, one of the best and most extreme cases I've ever seen him use it. Um, I I love where, oh, I love the yeah. commentary though, where he's just like, "Oh yeah, Department of Information." They're always hanging around a lingerie. Yeah. And it's like that <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about about the the ministry in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta love the fact that he, he he ought to be really grateful he's not in one of those things. Down, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's this uh, this shot right here that I was talking about. He uses the ultra-wide lens to where you're looking way down in the perspective, and it cuts on, like, the most ugly close-up you've ever right. seen in your life. I love that, because you have to... The first shot's 
is a, a wide angle lens where you're looking this huge hallway and you're leaning in like, is there supposed to be something at the end? And he catches you off guard when you're leaning in. It cuts to this uncomfortably close face. And I love that that cut. Boy, don't you just love how he constantly has like a, a like half a dozen dudes behind him constantly. Yeah. Either for the intimidation factor or to constantly berate him with questions. Oops. Come on now. <laughs> Sure it was. It was literally just a fly. <laughs> yup. <sighs> you know, it's kind of amazing that shit like that d didn't happen more often. Although, then again, it probably does. And the movie just never really shows it. It just kind of implies that into your head. A message? Oomp. <laughs> that was fast. Boy, that whole sequence was just straight out of Chapman or Chaplin. It's a winter wonderland. I like the fact that, I mean, it's very clear from his his reaction there at the office that he has so he has stepped so far out of his reality that like there's no going back for him. No, it's no. like he, he mean, could have sat down and addressed the paperwork and tried to solve things correctly, but 
he's become so infatuated and obsessed with her that like his reality is just gone. Yep. He's he's a little far gone, but just when you thought his apartment couldn't get any more uninhabitable, <laughs> it turns into basically the future hideout of Mr. Freeze. Oh boy, forced evictions too? <laughs> you and the rest of this movie, Bob. Oh yeah. Robert De Niro's back. Now, I will admit, this this is kind of an ingenious and just sinister revenge bit. Also, you really got to love the fact that uh, the septic and the air condition have the exact same kind of pipe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, that's not easy to mix up at all, especially with the amount, insane amount of... Uh, 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 Pipes already going back and forth throughout each apartment. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ugh. Oh, God. Did I shit myself? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that is an awful way to go. victory cigar <laughs> oh. oh hell <laughs> yeah you and get him robert de niro that phrase these days we're all in this together i know right that reveal shot for her right there oh yeah great Dude, you know, half of these shots really would be actually kind of great looking and even better, arguably, in black and white. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I bet if uh, Terry Gilliam had the budget, he probably would do a lot more of this movie with black and white and also black and white in color as well, like mixed you know, like black and white with color elements and so that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. But not that, that wouldn't that have been a uh, wouldn't wouldn't that have been a really great approach? Like, have all of his reality stuff in black and white, and play up that kind of beautiful film noir lighting, uh, but also, uh, ha but have all the the fantasy stuff. Uh, in color. Yeah. You know? Like, how great would that have been? And then, you know, as the movie goes on, there's, like, elements that are colorized and...
things that aren't and you start to question well if this is colorized is this real can this be trusted and you're not sure until the very end where it's all completely confirmed you know yeah like that would have been a really great way to tell this story you know i bet now that i'm looking at that like that this would be a great fan project you know mm, for someone yeah. to do uh like a uh a, a color spotted black and white bit where the dreams are color and the realities are black and white that'd be really cool someone do that as a fan edit i love her reaction here she's just never seen like the the wealth side of things like in up close in person like this oh yeah dude she's very like whoa i mean hell I've, i've been there before I mean, there was a time when I was living in a, a, literally the only space that I had was a 10 by 10 room in a house where I was living with five, six other people. Uh, and that, that same year, I also happened to get a lucky draw and, or a very good friend of mine invited me onto a, a cruise to Alaska and I walked on to, walked on board and I was like, holy shit what the hell am I doing here? Right. I'm just a poor kid from Chicago. Like, I don't belong here. This is how rich people spend their weekends. It was like that moment in Treehouse of Horror uh, where Homer goes 3D, and he's like, <laughs> oh, man, this place looks expensive. I feel like I'm wasting a fortune just by standing here. Better make the most of it. <laughs> She's like, what the, what the fuck hell? was that? motherfucker i love she's like, the, well, the design oh, the ex- architecture here right where you finally get those like not so up close big, to the wide the shots big of it. wide yeah. shots man and even even with the cleaner material pipes everything the fuck they're everywhere dude although those vacuums are going to be coming back in a big bad way later on i tell you what Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I love he, even he's got the same fucking gift. Right. <laughs> you know, I wonder if those are actually available. Like, as uh, either not just original props, but or, like, actual bits in promotion of the movie, or... Something yeah. very similar. I'm pretty sure those exist somewhere. Well, I mean, Christmas is right around the corner, so <laughs> if y'all want to get me something, I'm just saying. That'd be, that'd be a nice Christmas gift, you know what I mean? Because apparently everyone in this movie thinks it's a good Christmas gift. Yeah, dude, look at these sets. Like they, it, This seriously looks like pieces of the Axis Chemical set from Batman. Yeah, I... I, I it's very similar although what you know it's funny though uh because uh that set that particular set was explicitly used for a movie that came out in 1984 or 1986 actually and it was the uh the uh the alien set for james cameron oh like if you remember towards the end of the movie where you know all the eggs are in uh, are and the the alien queen and uh, the 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 nuclear power plant fact that set 
that was totally, totally, 100% reused to be the Axis chemical set for Batman. Interesting. Yeah. And now I look at this place, and I'm like, oh, my God, this looks exactly like Carl Grisham's set from, you know, when the Joker comes in, like, you sold me over a woman. See, it, a it, woman! it's interesting because this movie actually does have a connection to uh, Alien also. Oh, yeah. How? Uh, so all the effects used for the computer terminals are identical yeah. are identical for the uh, for those used for the uh, uh, the mother six thousand computer uh, in Alien. See everything, all and, this shit's connected. Yeah, and, and obviously Ian Holm was in both movies. Yes, of course, everything's connected. What does it mean? What does it mean, Sean? <laughs> It means that Hollywood's really cheap and they just like to reuse their shit. <laughs> well, you know, when you got to come in under budget. Oh, yeah, dude, totally. I mean, and hell, this movie didn't have that really that big of a budget. It only cost, you know, back then it was like 15 million, which is like, you know, what? 35 something today. So it's not yeah. that expensive of a movie, but unfortunately it didn't do too well at the box office. Uh, which is really sad because this was a, a wonderful movie. But then again, I think it has a lot to do with like all this crazy recuts and you know. The... I, I would I would not be surprised if this has made up its uh, has become it, it, technically profitable budget. in time. Uh, assu yeah. Assuming we obviously ignore Hollywood accounting. Yeah, totally. I, I'm pretty sure it has because it's got such a huge following. I mean, you know, it's it's actually the personal favorite movie of all time for, you know, people like, you know, Frank, Frank Zappa and uh, uh, Doug Walker, the nostalgia critic. Like uh, he's he's gone on record many times saying, yeah, this is my all time favorite movie of all time, period. Yeah. And I mean, it's. I don't know. As I said kind of earlier, I can't really pick a single Terry Gilliam film as like my favorite or the best, but it's just kind of like. I, I always kind of have a, a rough I can't even do a favorite movie. I have kind of like a rough top five and really like you can just pick, you know, spot like three or four for just like insert totally. any whatever Terry Gilliam movie I'm really feeling at the time here. Totally. If if I really had to though, like if I had a gun to my head and said, What's the best Terry Gilliam movie? Not your favorite, just the best this just might be the answer. You know, see, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I I really have a love for the Brothers Grimm, so it's difficult. Okay. That's that's fair. That is totally fair. I, but yeah, I, here's the the bed, the famous yeah. bed. It's actually really interesting. First time I saw that movie, my friends and I caught it in theaters, and we watched the whole movie in complete silence. And, <laughs> and, and, no, and then the credits rolled, and we literally could not stop laughing for ten minutes. <laughs> it was like a giant joke that like you don't actually get to laugh at till the very end. It's like a two hour long joke and you finally get the punchline and you can just lose it. Fantastic. You're just like my dreams. Actually, I'm not no lie. The, the, the wig looks actually pretty good on her. Yeah. Oh my God. I deleted your file. We're free to go wherever we want. 
Yeah, but he should have deleted his own. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is one of the best lines of the movie, I swear to God. <laughs> it's so awful, but it's so funny. Oh, I love that shot. We get a yeah, POV it's... or aiming down with a, and it closes in. Like if I bet if uh, you know there were computers or anything, um, he would have tried to uh, uh, touch it up a bit so that it forms the shape of a heart as it closed. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you could tell he's like he's really trying to find that one take where it kind of looks like a heart, but you know it's just constraints of filming and whatnot yeah but had he had the tools i bet he would have done that <laughs> perfectly obscured because it's just the wig oh i love this shot <laughs> this is this is like the best thing ever like Here's your Christmas present. You want to unwrap it? <laughs> That's great, dude. Who doesn't want to wake up on Christmas for that? Although, uh, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll not have this part, though. Thank you. Do you also notice that every time these guys uh, break in, it's the, uh, the psycho uh violins the ee, ee, ee. oh shit dude this sequence is scary as hell. I, uh, but I love the fact that this actor is reading it so matter-of-factly and so fast. Like, this is a regular... Like, how, just to give you that sense of regularity for him. But for some reason, the, the speed at which he reads it is both hilarious and terrifying at the same time. Yep. Because it doesn't matter to him. It's just his job. Nope. Of course, they got to have that crescendo of, like, you're wasting paper. All our government is about is paper. Your papers and your receipts. The paperwork is everything. Oh, God. Jesus Christ, that's always so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so is that. I don't want this, Santa. <laughs> oh, you're not going to see her again. Well, he can't drink it. He's in a straitjacket.
I mean, it's kind of embarrassing that you spent this much time with company and government resources to stalk a woman. Nope. Also gotta love the Dutch lighting as well. As a matter of fact, I just noticed that uh, Terry really likes to use a lot of Dutch lighting. Dutch lighting kids is when, you know, it's the old flashlight trick where you hold it under your face to make it look scary. <clears throat> but I just noticed he did that a lot. Yeah. And not just this movie, but uh, in a lot of his movies, actually. Like, uh, um, well, it's definitely a recurring thing in Fear and Loathing Las Vegas because mm -hmm. he goes really fucking apeshit with his lighting on that movie. Um, oh, boy. And happy Christmas! <laughs> Jesus Christ! Well, I mean, like, just... Being informed that, you know, she's dead does not help yep. you. <laughs> nope. Oh, dude. Dude, this shot. So. Man, look at that set, dude. Here's what's fun. Those rails are functional. Yeah, yeah, that's what they used to dolly back mm -hmm. at extreme speed, which I thought was really fun, but, oh, Jesus. So I take it this, in, in a weird way, this is uh, kind of the, uh, the infamous Room 101 of, uh, <laughs> of Orwell. Yeah. But uh, I do, yeah, this is the shot that I was talking about that just is so creepy but it's also so funny at the same time i don't know how gilliam is able to constantly walk that balance so skillfully throughout the entire movie of getting these really creepy and unsettling scenarios but also kind of making them weirdly funny he's a master of it yeah And I also love how there's the binky and the the bouncy ball. I think that actually might be a reference to his kid. We know it's you. <laughs> You're frightened. <laughs> Not going to lie though, uh if I if I was like sitting in a dentist chair or a or a doctor's examination with that kind of a mask staring down at me, 
I'd be fucking terrified. Well, yeah. Oh, such a good reveal shot. Although, is it weird that I kind of want that masked on display on my wall or something? It's good to have on a wall at the end of a dark hallway. <laughs> Lit from below. Oh, hey, check it out. It's Chris Nolan in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> <laughs> now you just kind of want them to start the chant. Dish it, dish it, Basra. Basra, dish it, dish it, Basra, Basra. And of course, Robert De Niro is here for to save the day. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll call you Harry. <laughs> Freedom! Freedom! <laughs> and she just like, yeah, whatever. Not my department. <laughs> bang, bang. Look out. Kapow. I like kapow. that one of them takes the time to grab his coat. That's good. <laughs> oh, and then we got the famous breakout sequence. Gotta love, gotta love that the lift actually works now. And how the, uh, the, the, the desk clerk is just completely unfazed by all this. Yep. And then just if we if we couldn't make this sequence a little bit more awesome. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> we got to make the sequence even better by uh, doing a really fun reference to Battleship Potemkin. This is this is because like, uh, you know, a lot of people point out like, oh, one of the great homages to that was always in the Untouchables, which ironically, we already touched on this episode. But out of all the, the great parodies of of this, this is probably my favorite with the eyeglass, the, the soldiers marching down. I, I think I have to say, though, I think my favorites uh from uh i believe it's naked gun 33 and a third oh yes that's another good one too i just like this one probably the best because it's just the most surreal and the most fun and it's just there's no real need for it and no and it doesn't really add a whole lot but it's just fun that it's there Boy, you gotta love how easily it was to escape. You wanna do the honors? Destroy my workplace? Do I live out do I dare to live out the American dream? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, if that ain't it though. I wanna kill my boss and destroy my and, des and destroy the building where I work. All the papers raining down. Fuck your paperwork. Yeah. Burn, bitch. <laughs> down 
Done with authoritarianism and corporations. Down with governments. Fuck your paperwork. Yeah. Hell yeah, Batman. Hell yeah. Okay, seriously, like this whole set, because this is, wow, uh, stealth, stealth, their stealth level is like through the roof, because <laughs> that was that was pretty shit. That was like, how did you miss that? Oh wow, you know what I just noticed? There's no. Uh, there's no diegetic sound here. This is just music. This is actually playing like a silent film, actually, now. There's a tiny bit in the background. I can hear uh, the paper a little bit. Yeah, but they're turning... That, but obviously, yeah. they're, they're turning it way down to give it that sense of a silent movie now. That's a really interesting choice. I didn't notice that uh, in previous screenings. Oh, it's attacking me. The paperwork. The paperwork is coming back to ring true. Don't worry, comrade. I'm going to help you. That nasty withheld paperwork won't be taking you down. But I do love the fact that it's just, he's just vanishes. Mm -hmm. Vanishes in a sea of paperwork. Which, if that ain't fucking poetic, dude, like, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, it really is amazing that they, there's almost, that they, you know, the, the main focus in the sound mix is the music. And the uh, all the the background noise just gets like a a back seat, and for some reason that really really plays up like the the si the almost silent film esque kind of dreamlike stasis that he's in right now. God damn! If I love these sets. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We still haven't gotten to the weirdest part of the movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The uncomfort level is so real. <laughs> the weirdest funeral ever. You know, honestly, half this shit in this scene actually makes me feel like it was directed by or co-directed by Tim Burton. She just keeps getting fucking younger. Right. <laughs>
I need to hit on these young men that are the same age as you. And yet again, bursting through the scene. Oh dear. You know, for as as heavily armed as these uh, these guards are always, they don't really fire their weapons that often, do they? It's more for the intimidation factor. Oh. <laughs> Ew. Ew. Ah, oh, such a good transition. Oh, I'm looking. Does this look familiar now? Mm-hmm. And, like, right here is the biggest clue if you hadn't caught on already. Yeah. Is that he's he's not this is not actually happening. This is all yeah. just in his head, another dream. Um, but uh, oh god! But I actually do love that this whole sequence is kind of him struggling through the procedure. Yeah, I imagine. And as soon as he, uh, you know, the torment is gone, and he finds, uh, um, and he finds Jill again is when he's finally succumbed. Yeah. It's 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 a brilliant sequence. Yep. A sequence I might add lasts a full 10 minutes. Like that's a really uh uh in in a feature film that's a fairly long time to commit to a complete fake out. Yeah. Actually, it might even be closer to like 12 or 15 minutes. randomly materializes into the cabin and they get to drive off into the sunset into the wonderful hilly countryside away from it all which we already know that doesn't exist <laughs> yep we're going to have a lovely little home and a lovely little farm out in the middle of the country where no one not anyone can ever bother us again and we'll all live happily and verily ever after oh Ooh. well shit <laughs> I love the subtlety that you can see the wound on his hand that is like yeah. the location he has been being tortured, but like they yep. leave it at that. Yep. I'm pretty sure like he's, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they actually, uh, whether purpose, uh, whether on purpose or not, they uh, lobotomized him. Hmm. Well, but I mean, his hold on reality was tangential at best, so it's not that's true. Surprising so it just, that he just 
kind of snapped. Yep. But at least he got to live, at least uh, where, where he did wind up in his mind, at least we can say it's a good one. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, there's, uh, you know, th- this movie always brings up the, that question that everybody has to kind of uh, come to terms with in their life, which is, it's like, do you chase your dreams and, you know, face the possibility of being, uh, you know, of destruction and ostracization and just, you know, not being able to function in society? Or do you lean into, you know, society and play by the rules, but at the destruction of your true self? Yep. And I love how they they just hold on that that final shot throughout the entire credits, just to let that the the horror of where he is sink in. Yeah. Oh wow, Michael Common was the one who did the music. Right on. But yeah, I think we should also talk about the fight for final cut because this was so not how the studio wanted to end it. Oh yeah. Why don't you uh, bring up that story for those of you who probably don't know? Because most well, of you, I have a feeling, do know, considering, like we said, we have to, we are specifically watching the director's cut of this. Um, and therefore, you probably know about the other versions. But, yeah. Why don't you fill us in, Sean? Because I feel like I've been just jabbering on and on and on <laughs> uh yeah so the studio wanted to give this a happy ending which terry was like yeah that that's not going to happen at all Ever. um to the point where the movie was not being put out so some things that happened because of this uh terry got um de niro to go on a late night talk show with him to directly yep. call out the studio exec who was holding it up he took out a full page ad and i think it was uh like variety or something at the time which cost him a pretty penny and made it look like a funeral ad call <laughs> yeah calling out like that his movie's not coming out and calling out the executive by name which was like royally pissing him off and you know yep. it was part of the nudge uh but one of the big factors was um he was invited uh, to uh, participate in uh, not so much a film festival, but um, I can't. Do you remember the name of the school? Uh, yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, USC, was in, University of Southern California. Yep, it was several, um, a couple of uh, uh, Los Angeles film schools. I think he even had it at UCLA as well. Well, right. Uh, they were doing. Um, uh, they were doing a, a battle of uh, of the, kind of the, the the battle of movies, and he um, he was going to f- screen this film, and the studio got word of it, and we're just like, you're not allowed to do that, and so like he's at the event, like on the phone with the studio, going yep. back and forth, and they eventually give him permission to play a clip, and he just plays the whole movie. Yep. <laughs> and then continues to do that for two weeks. Just keeps yep. playing the movie. So because of those screenings and that they weren't being charged for, I mean, the studio's pissed, but it allowed the critics to get to go see his movie. 
Yep. And the critics were just giving it such rave reviews and calling it amazing that it basically forced the hand of the studio to finally let him put his cut out there because when you're sitting on a movie that critics are putting out rave reviews for and you're not putting out that movie because you're being grumpy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's bad press and yeah. last thing a studio needs is bad press. So there was just a, a huge bitter battle trying to trying to get his uh, his cut. And we're not even talking about this cut specifically. It was, mm-hmm. you know, a theatrical cut, but that did not have a happy ending. Yeah. This it, cut a, yeah, came go ahead. a little bit later, but this, you know, has basically been like this is the established cut that everyone watches and everyone should watch. So Yes, absolutely, dude. I mean, uh, we need, you know, weird movies like this. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's crazy how influential this movie is. Because, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie and that whimsical nature. We talked about Batman, Aliens, and Blade Runner. Um, but, uh, you know, th- some other things that kind of made me, it reminded me of is like the Coen Brothers uh the Hudsucker Proxy movie, mm-hmm. or uh, Alex Proyas's uh, Dark City. Oh, like, yeah. Those are some other ones that come in there. And you even mentioned Hackers. Like, this movie is a lot... is probably one of the most low-key influential movies, like, of, out there, especially of the... Uh, of the era of the 80s for sure right and i mean the the art style in it is so unique but not only that it is the the techniques it uses and um you know the blending of fantasy and reality and yes just the so much of it and and that's just it it's like its influence can be felt far and wide but nothing its influence is not massively overt you know you're not having yeah. people like it doesn't have a sequence like the odessa steps where you're going to be able to be like oh yeah that was straight lifted from here mm-hmm. um you know short of uh a, a snarky zipline escape with a wink like that's about the only thing you you might catch being straight cribbed from this totally but otherwise there's there's so many like little things and aesthetics that have been pulled uh from this used other places um but I think that's also one of the brilliant parts about it is because like it's not so overt uh, that you can necessarily always pick it out. But once you're really aware of this movie and have that context and you start looking around, it's like it, it so much of it pops up in sci-fi, in dystopian films and, and all that kind of stuff uh, hereafter. And I, I, its legacy, I don't think, can be overstated. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, like it, it it's definitely while we can while we've always kind of like gone back and forth of whether or not uh that this is uh uh his Terry's best work, we can definitely say this is peak Terry Gilliam. You know. I I mean I would agree with that, but uh, then again, I'm I'm somebody who thinks that Terry hit a peak and just didn't come down. <laughs> <laughs> he really never did, did he? Oh man, it's gonna be. And now, I, now I'm really need to just like spend an afternoon and try to hunt down a copy of uh, Man Who Killed Don Quixote because I've been reading about that for years and years. Now that it's finally out, I just need to actually sit down and watch it. Yeah, um, I mean, I, w- I was very happy I, I pursued it, and I mean, another movie he does with Price. So. Mm-hmm. 
totally totally oh well is there any other thoughts on this insane ride because i'm I've, i think i've been about exhausted by it all 20 th this movie is great but man is it a ride Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic movie. Everyone should see it and just totally. go into it with uh, an open mind and enjoy the trip. Absolutely, dude. Well, I think that'll be capping it off for this episode. Uh, you, you will act actually, you're going to be with us on next week's episode with uh, another Marvel movie of the month with Mark. We're doing uh, the OG X-Men movie from 2000 by Brian Signer. It's going to be a really good show, you guys. And because I know you, Sean, want, specifically wanted on here because uh, that particular episode, because you're a diehard X-Men fan. Yep. Uh, I got into comics when I was about eight years old. And I spent, uh, gosh, from about pretty much from when I moved to Ohio, so about 11, from about 11 to 15. I spent a lot of time tracking down like X-Men chase books. Like I would, you know, do my chores and do extra, extra stuff to earn my allowance. And I'd be, you know, riding my bike up to the comic store to get another, you know, silver age X-Men book. So Hoo yeah, it's going to be another really good episode. So hope to see you guys next week. It's been really fun listening to you. Uh, I've been Tim. I've been Sean. And this has been contract. We'll never have to watch a movie alone again. Peace.